Yep. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. I am Scott Lease here with my good friend and partner in crime, Richard Harris. What's up, Richard? Dude, I am excited to see you. I haven't talked to you in a while. And, uh, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm going with some buddies tonight. It's uh, October 11th to see Guns N' Roses. So, um, you know, I'm super excited and really excited that there's going to be, you know, six white guys pulling up in a minivan to a GNR concert. So yeah. I'll be sure to put some videos of that on TikTok. Are you in, are you in the uh, AARP section for this uh, concert? <laughs> Well played. Scott doesn't, Scott doesn't help me hard, but when he does, it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> we are, you're not on the lawn. We're actually sitting in chairs. So, you know, we just need to see how many people are like standing up, you know? Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise. I mean, you know, 55 plus, I don't know if you can stand for two and a half hours at a, at a rock concert anymore. Back, I might, can. back might give out. Yeah. 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 I can give a free plug to depends because I don't want to miss a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're happy you all y'all joined us. We're here with a longtime sales leader and a thought leader and consultant who now runs her own go-to-market consulting firm called MSP Consulting, focused on the enterprise. Her name is Monica Stewart, and we'll bring her on in just a second. But first, Richard's going to talk to us about HubSpot and all the wonderful things that they're up to. Yeah, um, you know, we are in the Q4 moment, right, for most people. So it's crunch time, particularly 2023 has been an interesting year. Um, and if you didn't know this about HubSpot, they built a thing called Sales Hub, um, which gives sales reps some deal-making tools to help win the deals you're looking for. So if you are already a sales, a HubSpot customer, be sure to check out the Sales Hub. If you're not and you're looking for something like a CRM, be sure to check it out. Um, it talk, it helps with uh, smart sequences. It can help with prospecting your workspace and scheduling goals and all your to-do lists and keep you super organized and focused, uh, which I always need. And yes, yes, there is even AI, uh, not only for copy, but for your forecasting to help you figure that stuff out. So please check them out at hubspot.com. Um, you know, they will help make sure that closing deals are no big deal. Thank you, uh, HubSpot, for being a part of us and supporting us. And check them out at HubSpot.com. Oh, HubSpot.com slash sales, Scott. You're supposed to correct me. So, I don't know. I don't have these URLs memorized. This is not yeah. my skill set. <laughs> strong suit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Monica Stewart to the show. How's it going, Monica? Hey, guys. It's going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Talk to us about uh, MSP Consulting. I, I was just looking and you started two or three months after I did out on, out on my own. So, so we sort of started at what was arguably like the worst point in time possible, mm -hmm. right? When yeah. we started. So talk to everybody a little bit about uh, what you do at MSP and, and how you got into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so MSP Consulting is, is my company. And basically what we do is we help B2B tech startups build sustainable go-to-market teams, kind of like you do, Scott. Um, I don't do the, the like zero to one, we kind of focus more on like the two to 10. So like, you know, first time early stage founder that doesn't have any customers yet. That's not really our market. Um, we really work with companies that have achieved like some kind of milestone, they've got some level of success, but they're stuck there. And they need to figure out how to get to the next level. And usually that's something around a new uh, revenue plateau or a new funding milestone that they want to hit. Um, or maybe even getting the founder out of sales. 
Um, and kind of my, the way that I ended up here is that, you know, I've been in sales my whole life. I think like most of us have, right. And um, I was honestly just really good at it. Like every job that I did, I was always the top performer. I got promoted. Um, I was pretty lucky to pick some really good companies. Like there was one point at which like four out of the last five companies that I had worked with had all been acquired and they were all really successful acquisitions. Um, so on one level, it was all going like really well. And I loved my career. But then on another level, I was getting really, really, really burned out. And that was pretty much all I was doing. And so I actually ended up leaving the industry for a while um, and taking some time to figure out what it really was that I wanted to do. Like, so when you talk about bad timing, um, I, my first, uh, the first time that I tried to leave the sales industry was at the end of 2019. And I'm going to tell you guys a story that I actually haven't told anybody publicly before. Um, and the reason that I did that was because I wanted to switch my career entirely and move into nightlife. I was working on opening a venue in New York City, which is always something that I've been interested in on the side. Like I started organizing raves when I was like 16. And so like beginning of 2020, first three months of 2020, I raised like over a million dollars to open this club. And then... I'm like, oh, great. I know where yeah. going. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and then I'm like, well, this is cool. So like, we like, we're putting in an offer on a building. We had like architects, like we were really like doing the whole thing. And then I was like, okay, I can see how for the next, you know, maybe like nine, 12 months, there's not going to be a lot of stuff for me to do. Like I made a five-year financial model. I did all this fundraising stuff. Like we had all of the designs, you know, like that's kind of the work that I can do. And, and I'm not going to manage contractors. So I'm going to have some free time. So maybe I should do some consulting um, because why not? Right. I don't want to just be like sitting around. And so I started working with a couple of clients um, and then like literally right after I made that decision and I didn't really do very much. I just changed my title on LinkedIn to independent consultant and I got like a, you know, a flood of, of DMs Um and so then within like two weeks of me signing those contracts, of course, like there was no point in trying to plan to open the nightclub anymore. And we're like, oh, it's going to be like three weeks and then it's like months and then it's like years. And during that time, I just went all in on my consulting work. Um, and I think that what was a, what was good about that decision was that it was so, actually some of the best work that I've ever done. But what was bad about that decision was that during that time that everybody was like, wow, that was so nice that we got to take a break. And I went and traveled the world and I learned how to make sourdough bread and tie dye stuff and all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I was working like 90 hours a week. Um, and I wasn't really taking time to like take care of myself. I was just like, got to get this done. Got to get this company acquired, like got to make sure that they're successful. And so once I had kind of like finished those projects and they did go really well. Like one of the companies that I was working with got acquired for like six X what they were valued at when we started. And that was in less than a year. So that was like a great story for them. Um, I realized that I really needed to like take a step away and just take a break from sales in general um, because I had just like been going at it too hard for too long. And I was kind of like, I don't ever want to talk to someone about their Salesforce dashboards like ever again. And so I couldn't see at that time a way that I could continue to be in this industry and use all of the skills that I had, that I had without all of that stuff. 
because I had only grown up in a world where it was like, you know, you're working 80 hour weeks, you're doing three people's jobs, you're always on, you sleep for five hours a night. It was like major hustle culture, right? Like I came up in like the mid 2000s. So that's just kind of what we were all doing. And I thought that all of those things had to go together. So I was like, well, that's it. I got to leave. It was like a bad relationship. It was like, like, I love you, but like, you don't love me. Like I got to go. Um, so I took about a year and a half off and I went and did a whole bunch of other things. I started a booking agency. I started a bunch of event companies and I kind of like had that, uh, that break that I've never had in my entire life, I guess a sabbatical or something like that. And then after a while, I started to realize that um, I really missed a lot of things about the work that I had kind of spent my entire career doing. And I think that for me, like one of the reasons that, that I kept coming back to it is I think it's really important work. Um, Like my parents are entrepreneurs. My, I watched my dad, build a company when I was growing up and I saw him like get up at 5am and read the wall street journals and read all the business books. And like, he dropped out of high school when he was 15, like he didn't have the like background to do that. And I just saw how much work he put into making it happen. Um, and he ended up being very successful at it. And like, I know what it takes for somebody to like quit their cushy job at like a bank and like go and raise some money and like pour everything they have into this startup. And the first three years, nobody cares. Like, I really, really, really want founders to be successful. And I was like, I know that I can do that. So I started going back and I I started with literally just having conversations with everybody that I'd ever worked with. And I was like, so what would you guys say it is that I do here? Like, I was, I literally just started from zero and I was like, what am I good at? Like, what did I do for you? Like, what was helpful for you in our relationship? And then from there, I started pretty much like, rebuilding what I like, what my offering is and how I work with companies, just kind of starting with those first principles of what it is that I'm really good at and the things that I think that people need the most. And I don't really talk about Salesforce anymore. Good for you. So I think (laughs) I have other people that can do that. the, the, The most important thing I got out of that, Scott, I don't know if you tell me is that she has a client that exited in one year, right? Like we've never had that, <laughs> not that fast. So. <laughs> well, it wasn't the hire, first year. It wasn't the, <laughs> um, it wasn't the first year of the company. They'd been doing this for a little while before so I came what, along, but yeah. But what was the, like, was, what was the aha moment, right? So you left to go do this dream, right? Which yep. is great. like, you followed this passion, which, you know, I think Scott and I've told people all that, just quit, go do what you really want to do. Right. Right. You can always come back. Right. Right. What, Aside from you didn't have anything else to do, right? And you went and you started doing a couple of new clients. What was the real draw that said, you know what? This is more important to me than this nightclub thing. Like, like, hey, I've done my nightclub thing. I, I, I pursued that a little bit. What was it that you missed? Because it wasn't the Salesforce dashboard. <laughs> it wasn't the Salesforce dashboard. No, um, I think it was the, it was kind of what I just said, like, seeing people have the realization that the dream that they left everything for is actually going to work. Yeah. yeah. That's like, that's what I really love. And I think that that, that kind of, that's on the company level, the founder level, and then even like the individual contributor level. Um, There was, there was actually a, a rep that I was working with at one of my clients that texted me a photo the other day 
of the little part on her computer next to the mouse tracker. And it was just a post-it, which was written in big block letters, run shit, underline, 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 exclamation point, exclamation point. And that was from when we were working together, I had all of the reps do their own QBRs where they would present their, their results and then their areas for improvement and then their own personal goals for the next quarter. And that was what she came up with one quarter. And I loved that for her because when we started working together, she was like, you know, a really good girl. And she's like, I'm just doing my job and I want all my clients to like me. And it's really important that like, I check all the boxes and like do what everybody wants me to do. And for her to have that transition where she was like, fuck it, I'm all in. It made me so happy. And even that she texted me that a couple of years later, she's like, oh, I just brought out my old computer and I, and I remembered this. Um, I just love seeing people have those, those moments because they've already taken such a risk to get there. Yeah. I think I really love what you just said too, is you know, it feels like the difference between good salespeople and great salespeople are the ones who do make that recognition of, I need to stop checking all these boxes based on mm -hmm. what their expectations of me are, right? And then find the right boxes for everybody, right? Because you just have to yeah. some certain steps, but, you know, you, you know, it's moving away from that. I want them to like me too. I want them to respect me, which doesn't mean being a jerk, right? And, you know, right you know, pushing back a little bit. I, I love that. So I have one more question for you. Um, and then I'll let Scott ask a couple, but you said earlier, you know, that you, you really sort of work with clients that, you know, not the first million, right. There's some little milestone yeah. they've hit, right. One, I'm curious what you think those specific milestones are. Mm. And then in general, because this is always a fun topic. When do you think a client has product market fit? Oh, gosh. Um, so those are two really good questions. Uh, so in terms of the first one, the first question is, what are those milestones? Like, what are the things that people should be looking yeah, what, for? Yeah, what are the things where you're like, oh, they're a good client for me because they've achieved this part? Right. Um, so I think that the like the milestones that that companies go through, and they're roughly correlated to revenue, but there's some fuzziness because you could be selling like a wildly expensive product. Um, I'm working with a company right now that like their contracts are 300,000 to 1.2 million. And that's like a pilot for them. So if they have 2 million in revenue, it's not the same as someone who's selling like an 80K SaaS. Um, so I think that the milestones are like your first 10 customers. And those are not going, the way you get your first 10 customers is not going to be the way that you get the next 10 and the next 50. But it's really important to get those first 10 and do it in a way that follows some sort of process. And then there's your next 10 like unaffiliated customers. Um, that's your second milestone. It's like, can you sell to people who have, they have no network in common with you and they've never heard of you before. They're really just responding to the way that you're messaging your product and your value. Um, and then I would say the next milestone is being able to um, train somebody else to be successful within the sales process that you've been running. Um, and then, yeah. And then it just kind of scales from there. I mean, there's so many, right? Like in the, yeah. in the growth of a company. So, and so when, you know, and I, it's always, it depends, right? But in right. general, right, product market fit, like sometimes you can talk to people, they think they've done 5 million or 10 million and they think they've got product market fit, right? Yeah. And that's not always the case. Like how do you, right. see, when do you think there's, is it revenue? Is it number of customers? Is it? after they've been around two or three years and they can see their renewal, right? Their, their net revenue retention, like 
what's that look yeah. like? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think NRR has to be the, if you had to pick one metric with which to, to measure product market fit, it would have to be like NRR. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would also marry that with a number of customers. Um, because again, like if you're telling me that you only have five customers, but they're all renewing with you and, you know, maybe even some of them are expanding. Okay. That's great. But are there like 500 more of those? And do you have a way that you can easily get them? So what I look for is like an NRR, um, rough number of customers correlating to revenue. And then also like how repeatable is your process? If, it, if, it, if you have to have NRR to have product market fit, then by default, are we saying you can't know if you have product market fit until at least one year after you brought people? Yeah. Up? Yeah. I think, it's or an, whatever. I think it's an important point that um, I just want to just want to clarify. Yeah, a hundred percent. I do believe that. Or whatever point at which you're renewing um, your contracts. Like I mostly work with people who are selling to the enterprise. So for a lot of them, the first customers that they'll sign up, they'll do like a six month pilot. You have to see if those people are now committing to stay with you. Yeah. Because I think most yeah. people, most founders assume they have product market fit when they get somebody to do a six month trial. Some money. Yeah. Do you know how many times I hear do you know how many times I hear we have we have 25 customers right now? And I'm like, sweet, how many of those are on a trial versus paid? And they're like, oh, they're all on, on a trial. And I'm like, right. all 25 of those are on a free trial. They're like, yes. Oh, gosh. I'm like, oh, so, and you think you have product market fit because of that? Well, they don't even have customers. They don't even have customers. No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah. But it's an interesting point because I think if you asked, if we did like a survey of a hundred founders right now and, and we said, you know, how many customers do you have? And they all have around 20. They would all probably say, yes, I think I have product market fit. Yes. I think that product market came back to them and said, well, how long have they been customers of yours? Probably none of them in the early stage would say more than a year. So there's a disconnect disconnect there. There's a huge disconnect there. And I I think that the, the shift is like most in most founders who haven't done it a bunch of times before, think that product market fit is something that you have until it's proven that you don't. And I think it's really the opposite. You should assume you should assume nothing until you've really proven that those are your ideal customers and they will stay with you and they're using your products. I like that. And I think the reason the reason that people don't do this, it's a really it's just a big a big part of it, I think, is just fear. Like in sales, we talk a lot about people having happy years and like the first time that somebody says, like, oh, that's that would be useful. They're like, great, amazing, they're gonna buy. Um, the dark side of having happy ears is a fear of hearing no, like, you know, you've created this thing and you've put it out into the world and you've invested millions of dollars in building it. And you like the fear of rejection that is built in that process can be pretty extreme if you don't, um, actively attack it. And so it's like, yeah, you want to hear that people love your product, but you also desperately do not want to hear what people don't like about it or why they wouldn't use it. But the thing is, is that those things are going to come out in the wash regardless. And you should be having those conversations like as early and as often as possible. I do a lot of work with customer success teams now because, um, you know, a lot of companies are realizing, of course, that like that's where their their biggest 
pile of money really lies. And the number of times that they'll ask me like, well, but like, what if something isn't going well? Like, what if they're not using the product or what if they had a problem? Like, we don't, should we like talk to them about that? And I'm like, yes, you should talk to them about that. You're going to, you, you want to do a renewal, right? Like you think it's not going to come up if you just like, don't talk you like, you need to talk. You could call them right now, like have a conversation, figure out how you're going to fix it. It's not going to get better in the next seven months with you not doing anything. There's no Don't magic you think that unicorn that, fairy dust. Say that again, Richard. There's no magical unicorn fairy dust. Sadly, no. <laughs> Don't, Don't you think that one of the reasons that they're that, that founders sort of say that they have product market fit before they do is because the system has made them have to lie about this in order yes. to get funding for the first time, to raise funding the next time? I mean, what am I going to... As a founder, what am I going to go do? I, I'm looking to raise money, let's say, okay? And, uh-huh. I, and Richard's the VC, and, and I'm like, look, I got 25 paying customers, but I don't have product market fit yet because nobody's been around for a year. That's not the story that the VCs want to hear. No, it's not. No, they want to hear. Even, even, even when it's factual. That's not the story they want to hear. So I think that the system has made it so... Founders have to kind of lie about it or really just believe that they do have product market fit because I have enough customers that somebody gave me money to fund my business. Yes. So therefore I have product market fit. If people don't yes. believe they should go read the story of Theranos, right? Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. <laughs> you think that was <laughs> the problem with she Theranos? Really got have product market fit. She got she got she got found guilty and is going to jail because she lied about the product roadmap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do. So I, I do think it's, it, I think you're right, Scott. I think it is the system. And I also think that like everyone has to take responsibility within that system, right? Like there's, a, there are a lot of VCs and a lot of private equity firms that will give you bad advice. And I think it's also like, at the end of the day, as a founder, it's your company, dude, like you are steering this ship, you know, if you're getting bad advice, or if you feel like you have to lie or, um, misrepresent your company to a dangerous degree in order to get funding maybe you should be looking at like different investors or or like a different funding model or you should be seeking out advice on how do you tell that story in a way where it's like a positive for you you know like i think it is also okay that's the right answer the right answer yeah i've got 25 paying customers we don't have product market fit yet because None of them have been around for a year. I haven't had a chance to measure our NRR. And the fact that I just said that to you, Mr. VC, Richard Harris, shows that I'm in the top 1% of the 1% of all early stage founders because I actually know that. A hundred million percent. And then also in the process of getting those those 25 customers, these are the groups that we talked to and we tried and we decided not to go with. And so we have a rough hypothesis right now that like this ICP is the one that we're going for. And this is why. And then- this is when we'll know if that's true for sure. And then if it's not true, this is what we're going to do. I can see Scott Stack coming in and the first slide says, why you shouldn't give me any money? And then that's Scott- actually not, bad, that that's actually not a bad strategy. Right, like that's- There's actually, there's someone that did that and they posted about it on LinkedIn recently. And it was a really big company. I'm going to remember what it was and I'm going to send it to you guys. But it was like the very first slide was like all of the reasons why this is probably a bad idea. Yeah. 
and then of course they countered all those things these are all the reasons why we're going to fail these are all your objections now let's talk about the positive so Mm -hmm. exactly i actually so many people like to call out all the quote unquote bad sales advice from consultants and sales leaders and whatnot but nobody ever calls it out from the vcs all the mm. bad advice that they're throwing around screwing people up. Yeah. And it's that's where really a lot of it is coming from. I think a lot of consultants that are not doing good work, it's because they don't know how to challenge their customers. They don't know how to challenge the company's core assumption about what they should be doing. Like I have a company right now that has been told by their board that they just need more volume. And I mean, they don't even have pilots. Like they are nowhere, they're two years away from having product market fit, but they're having a lot of conversations and their board is like, great, you're having like, you've got like five ops in your pipeline and they're all really big, really slow moving ops. So we just need to see more volume. You guys need to start doing outbound. This is a terrible idea. They don't know who to talk to. They don't know what they're going to say. They don't even have like data. They don't even have lead data. They don't even have a tool to do it with. They're going to spin their wheels for like four months trying to figure this out. And it's going to, it's going to suck. And then if you're like a mediocre consultant, you get, you know, in touch with a company like that. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. I can help you do outbound. Oh man, you guys have no idea how to do outbound. Let's make you some messaging and let me show you how to set up Apollo, et cetera, et cetera. But it's based on nothing. Like a really good consultant is is like, okay, let's have a, a really serious conversation about like why you guys think that this is what you should be doing right now. And are you willing to not do it? Because if you're not willing to not do it, then I don't think that I can help you. Because even if we do all the things right, like this isn't really what you guys need right now. Hundred percent, hundred percent. We look. Uh, it, that's the best part about I think the roles we're in is we we get to have those brutally honest conversations in a you know in a polite way, but sort of say, yeah, this isn't the right thing. And then you know sometimes they don't care and they'll still pay us. So you know I'm not going to turn down the. What are like the biggest things that you guys are seeing right now that people want to do that you're having to like talk them out of? Before I answer that, I'm going to go do a quick mid-roll for our friends over at HubSpot. Um, Okay. Back and maybe we'll give you the mic to just start asking us some questions. So, (laughs) um, which is always good. It's always, you've made this episode super easy. So thank you. And you dropped so much great knowledge. Oh, Uh, thank you. HubSpot, again, um, you know, if you want to go from being a contend, a pretender to a contender, if you really want to become a legend in Q4 and you're not leveraging, you know, the different items in your sales stack like HubSpot, uh, you're definitely missing some opportunities. So please be sure to go check them out. Uh, we appreciate HubSpot for putting us into the HubSpot podcast network. We are very grateful to them and all the support they've given us and some other amazing podcast friends in the sales and, and even the marketing world and some other places. So Thank you. Check out HubSpot.com slash sales. So, all right. So your question, Monica, was what are people asking for? Yeah. Um, miracles. That's what mm. people are asking. What are people asking for? You have to talk them out of. Yes. yes. <laughs> miracles. Uh, I think um, it's kind of the same that it's always been, which is tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us, you know, and, and how do we do it faster? Right. Like, you know, it it takes at least a year to get a good outbound process built. Right. This is not Mm -hmm. a a thing. Right. And there's a, you know, so people then have to figure out, well, what's 
my economic impact and opportunity cost to do that versus if I took that same amount of money and created better content or created, you know, other things that could drive inbound or, or market recognition. Um, so I think it's always been that outbound is 10x more expensive than they think, um, but they're under more pressure to get it because that's what everybody's telling them, right? That's what the VCs, mm. the system is telling them, you, you got to move to outbound because it's not working. You know, you, you got to get there faster. And it's kind of like, I get the idea of pushing. Um, I think it's, the pushing is unrealistic. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's one thing. I think that the, I think the same thing to you, aligning with what you said is that they're, they're asking for help and they don't realize the help they need is explaining to the VCs that this is not realistic and here's what is, um, which is, a, again, very scary to do. And I think for the three of us, it's, you know, it's easy for us to say that to somebody because, you know, we're not raising money and we're not, you know, responsible. Mm -hmm. I think those are the things that I, I think they're looking for. Um, I do think they're also going back to the good news is, is that people are in more of a growth mindset. Like they are like, help me figure this out. Um, they may not always like the answers that, that we have to give them, but they're open to figuring this out a little bit more than, than they were before. And they're finally, mm. I think the tech founders are finally realizing that no, a salesperson cannot just download the founder brain and make it work the same way. Because the founder thinks, you know, again, back to your point, because they did the first 10 customers, that everybody should be able to make it that easy. And they right. forget that it was their title. It was the introductions. It was, they were warm. It was all that stuff. So uh, that's what I'm seeing and hearing. Um, in addition to teaching my team, like how do I get my team to just convert better on the opportunities we do have? How do I convert the funnel into the next conversation, the next step and into closed deals? Mm. Why do you think that is? Like, what do you think? happened that people are more open to growth now or have more of a growth mindset they're fucking scared in, in startup founder world ah. scared. <laughs> um, well i mean i think I mean, there's a lot of things like you know we have these overvaluations right mm -hmm. we have unrealistic goals based on those valuations um we they still have a hard time finding the quality salespeople. They've been told to cut and slash and burn everything, um, and you know they're they're being told to do to do more with less, but nobody's ever taught them how to do it, and so they're very scared, and they do want the counsel, and they're open to it, um, you know. So I think that's different. I also I can't tell if it's a generational thing. Like the founders today, particularly the tech founders, feel like they're a little bit more open than maybe the tech founders of five years ago. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the tech founders five years ago were, were trying to understand the sales and revenue model, define the process, treating it like a process, um, mm. you know, salespeople like, you know, we're transactional and can be mm -hmm. put in and put out and there's no big deal. I think there's more just knowledge out there on how to grow a business. So I think I don't, mm. that's the opposite. I have no idea if that's true. That could just be what my experience has been like the last five years. So. I have a slightly different take, I think. <clears throat> the, the things that I'm having to talk people out of doing that they, they want to do all the time is 
hire for industry expertise and Rolodex rather than their sales acumen. Uh It's like a never ending battle. We'll probably never defeat this uh, (laughs) demon. This dragon. Yeah. But uh, it is shocking to me how many people still do this despite having me and other people in their ear telling them that's not a good move. Um, The second thing is they refuse to believe that when you hire anybody in a sales and revenue role, that speed of the hiring process is important. Mm-hmm. They couch it in, we want to do our diligence, we're taking mm-hmm. our time, we don't want to rush things. And I'm trying to explain to them, salespeople move fast. And when yeah. you're dragging this process out for four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, we assume that that's how you make every decision, which yes. is you're not making a decision. So therefore, I'm not going to be able to get anything freaking done when I come <laughs> work for you. And so you're losing mm-hmm. candidates by taking so long and not putting people through this process quickly. Do you think that's the happening? Next thing I would say is, um, do you think people are losing candidates just because they're, you know, in the tech sales world, there's a lot more people out there? Not, not that they shouldn't change their process, but do you think they no. are? No, I don't think that's why. I just think they literally take forever. They don't know how to run a process with any kind of speed. And I don't know, I've never hired engineers. Maybe the speed with which you put people through a hiring process on, on the engineering side doesn't matter. But on the sales and sales leader side, it fucking matters. It matters a lot. Yeah, because we're running our candidate process. Like if someone's looking for a job in sales or sales leadership, they're treating it like a sales process. They have their pipeline, they're following up and they're just like, okay, who like who's moving through the pipeline? Yeah, and I, we've, we've moved on if, if you take too long. Right. So, then everybody thinks that they have uh, an ICP like that is broad as hell, <laughs> always. So I'm constantly trying to tell them just because you think you can sell to everybody at the beginning mm. doesn't mean that you should. So that's something that they're all doing wrong that I'm constantly kind of raging against. Um, and then the, the last thing is they all just want to go fast, 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 mm. fast, fast, fast. And I'm constantly telling them that in order to go fast, you have to go slow first. Yeah. You gotta slow down in order to go fast. If you just like release a couple AEs into the wild and have them do whatever to try to generate revenue, you might get a little bit of revenue, but you have no scalable process and system whatsoever that you can bank on. And the company that will win is the one who took some time up front to figure out who is our exact ICP. What is our exact messaging that we need to lock in on, right? And really understanding like the pains that the prospects go through and we build out this like process and now we have all this in place and now we start running and eventually yeah. we pass all these people who got a little bit of a head start on us. Mm-hmm. Those are four things that I'm constantly trying to, you know, win the debate with, um, with clients and prospects and, and the like. That's yeah. a really solid list. Yeah, it, I would also, I would say on your last point, like not updating your ICP, like as you're learning more about your market and as it changes, you know, Yeah, it's a really big one. All of these things should be kind of living, breathing entities rather than some static thing that's carved in stone. Like your ICP evolves, your messaging evolves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You change as you learn. So yeah, it's interesting. What I what I took out of the last thing you said too, Scott, was, you know, 
some parts they need to go fast, some parts they need to go slow. They're they're putting their foot on the accelerator at the wrong place. Yeah. Like, mm. like they're, throwing, they're throwing bodies at the problem, you know, which is putting the accelerator on, but they're taking forever to hire a sales yeah. lead. Yeah. They're right? slowing down on yeah. the straightaway and speeding right. up on the <laughs> Right. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> so um that's great. What else do you want to ask us? We're we're always happy to answer your questions, Molly. Yeah. Um so, Scott, you've been talking a lot about Nearbound recently, um, which I love. And I would love to know, like, what are the companies that you think are going to really crush it at this? And what are the ones that actually shouldn't even think about trying to implement yeah. it for like another five years? Well, that's, that's very interesting. Um, the ones who are going to crush it are the ones who are incorporating it into what is still working right now. Mm -hmm. So they're not abandoning cold calling or cold emailing if they're getting positive results and outcomes. They're supplementing it and sort of preparing for what I believe is an inevitability when those tactics don't work at all anymore. So they're building their network right now. They're putting in network growth as like KPIs. They're engaging with the cap table and advisors and influencers and whoever might be able to make intros. They're sort of learning the motion right now, studying it and implementing it in low friction kinds of ways. Those mm -hmm. people are going to win because they'll have a massive head start. <clears throat> mm. People that don't need to focus on nearbound right now. Um, I think are, are people that are in markets where they're not seeing the same diminishing returns of cold calling and cold emailing. Let me, let me try mm -hmm. to give you an example. Um, let's say we're trying to call real estate agents and sell them something. Mm -hmm. Real estate agents for better or for worse still live and die on their cell phone. Yeah. So they pick up the phone a lot more than a tech CEO does. Right. Right. Let's say we're trying to sell to um, small businesses like, like a local gym or, a, you know, a holistic like practitioner or whatever, those people have office lines still and or mm -hmm. somebody answering the desk phone, right? Mm -hmm. So you're getting pickup rates that mirror for the most part, the mid 2000s when you and mm. I were coming up, you know, learning how to sell and cold call. So you don't have to abandon those strategies for nearbound right now because those business owners are still using these communication tools of yesteryear. Whereas mm. in tech and B2B, we're abandoning those things. I don't know about you, but my phone is, off. the ringer is off. All Do the not time. disturb all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So if I'm trying to prospect you, cold calling you is not going to work. It's not. No. But if I was trying to prospect your nightclub, for example, Somebody is at that nightclub probably from 4 p.m. to, you know, 2.30 a.m. Yeah. So the, the right time to call them is probably about 5 p.m., 5.30 p.m. when they're just like getting organized. They're and there. Somebody's there. Yeah. Somebody's probably going to pick up the phone. Or if you DM on Instagram, someone's going to answer. Yeah. That's so their job. I think, I think there's certain industries that don't need to... Um, prepare for it as soon as others, I guess is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. 
I, I love the, the framing of like the industries that are seeing diminishing returns. And I, I think that sadly, those are probably going to be the ones that are going to be the slowest to adopt it because they had something that was working at one point. Yeah. And, and those are the you people know? that, those are the people that you see, um, like the ADPs of the world. Yeah. And these are the people that yeah. are getting the most pissed off about, you know, this chatter about near bound and totally you know, diminishing yeah. returns of cold calls and stuff like that. It's like, they're so heavily invested there <laughs> and they don't have the modern kind of mindset or personnel to adopt this new stuff. Like I get it. They're pissed off. They feel threatened. They, they're backed into yeah. a corner and you know, the claws come out. I get it, but that doesn't make them right. That's totally right. Yeah. Just because your whole career was built on doing things this one way, doesn't mean that you get to still do that. Right. I mean, our career was made on cold calling. Yeah. All, all, all three of us. Right. So you totally don't think it's scary for me. You don't think it's scary for me to look into the future and be like, what am I going to do? What value do I provide in a world that doesn't have this? Like we all have to learn and adopt and change, or we have to get out of the game. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that scares a lot of people. Yeah. It's disrupting so the entire channel model. You know, the channel existed in a different way than it does now. Right. There were, you know, the, the, you know, the resellers and, you know, distributors and all that stuff, you know, that all is shifting into this near bound world, even though they, they will think they're the same thing. You know, the big companies who've done channel for decades, think nearbound is nothing new other than a buzzword right um but mm. there, there's a lot of nuance between it because it's a different way it. yeah you know i've sold to this yeah. know how it works um but it's different because nearbound's more about the personal relationship where the channel is still a, a a prey and spray spray and pray approach right so they haven't figured out that nuance yet i think so yeah. And building relationships looks, looks different now, right? Like, I guess if we take the ADP example, like you're sure they've been taking people golfing and doing that for years and years and years, yeah. but that's not necessarily how people form relationships now. Yeah. Like if you look at Gen Z and millennials that are the decision makers of today and tomorrow, they want to spend their time in a different way. And they're not like, Oh God, please let me get out of the office and go to lunch with this salesperson. Think, they're, they're not even in an office. Yeah, yeah, should yeah. I know you have feelings about that, but you know, you have to think about, you have to think about value in a relationship in a different yes. way. That's the, that, that point that you just made is the most important point in the distinction between yes. channel and near bound. I think the millennials and the Gen Z see companies like ADP or paychecks and, you know, fortune as the same way they, they see their grandparents or parents who still want to read a newspaper. They're like, I don't yeah. want that because that's, that's what why. my parents did. There's a better, faster way. Um, and I think that's the disconnect too. Uh, Monica, we are, this flew by. This was fascinating, awesome. It really did. So much good content. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. Monica Stewart on LinkedIn. I post there every single day. And I respond to all of my DMs unless you're trying to sell me uh, copywriting or lead generation services. I would agree. I, I, you know, I love responding to the ones who say I have a really amazing profile and a fabulous career. And <laughs> You're like, thank <laughs> you. I do. Right. Finally, someone realized. <laughs> right. this with oh, my thanks so much, career. Monica, for joining us. <laughs> and we'll see everybody next time on the Surf and Sales podcast.
Thanks, Monica. Thanks, guys. Bye.